Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Leslie Hewitt. Hewitt is included in A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. The exhibition, which was curated by Ryan and Dennis and Jessica Bell Brown, features newly commissioned work that addresses the Great Migration from 12 Black artists. The Great Migration was the movement of more than 6 million Black Americans from the South to cities across the United States. The exhibition is in Jackson through September 11th, when it will travel to Baltimore. Hewitt's photography and sculpture revisit art historical forms, such as the still life and minimalist sculpture, through the lenses of personal history, biography, and America's past. The Minneapolis Institute of Art, the MCA Chicago, the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis, the Des Moines Art Center, and the Menil Collection are among the institutions that have presented solo or two-person exhibitions of Hewitt's work. On the second segment, Cornell Watson at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. That helps new people find us. Thanks very much. Leslie Hewitt, after the break. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shape the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art presents Maya Lin, A Study of Water, a solo exhibition that brings together a selection of the internationally acclaimed artists' large-scale sculptural interpretations of water. The exhibition features a site-responsive installation using tens of thousands of polished glass marbles that map waterways onto the walls and floor of the gallery. Maya Lin, A Study of Water, is on view only at the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art in Virginia Beach, April 21st through September 4th. Admission is free. Reserve your tickets now at virginiamocha.org. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Leslie Hewitt, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be there. Given the history that the Mississippi-Baltimore Project addresses, I thought we should start with the Great Migration itself. Does your family have a Great Migration story, and did it inform the work you made for the show? 100%. And to be honest, I feel like all of my work is informed by some aspect of this lesser-known narrative so I guess I will be very specific here. My mother's family is primarily 
maternal side of my mother's family, we can trace to 1824 in New York City. On her paternal side, they are Carlisle, Pennsylvania, moving to New York early part of the 20th century. So before 1910. So my mom's family is a little different, but it's still, I think, impactful and interlaces with the Great Migration proper, which I think is 1910 to 1970, roughly. My father's family definitely takes on this, I guess, identity. My grandmother, his maternal line from my dad, traveled from Macon, Georgia to Chicago, early part of the 20th century in the 30s. And then once she met her husband, who is my grandfather, so my father's paternal line, came from newborn North Carolina to Harlem in the 20s. And then he was a Pullman porter, which is another very significant, I think, narrative. How can I say this? Like congeals so many political interests, whether they be union organizing and social justice and, you know, all of these things together, which is part of his narrative. Met my grandmother in Chicago and then they moved to Harlem in the 40s. So, yes, the Great Migration is a part of my narrative it greatly, I think, has affected my aesthetics, the way that I think about form. And for the this invitation to participate in this exhibition gave me the opportunity to explore that more fully. And I, I really just chose my, my grandmother, who I spent the most time with, because the other, my grandparents were a lot older. So I was born to both my mother and my father were born to older parents, like giving birth to them in their 40s. And in my dad's case, his father was in his 50s. So it's only my paternal grandmother who I had the opportunity to spend the most time with. So that's her narrative and the things that she shared with me indirectly as an artist are what I chose to bring to the fore in my work that's a part of this exhibition. First, thank you for sharing that, because that's many great migration histories in one present person, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And before we get to the work in the show, you said that the Great Migration has impacted how you think about, the Great Migration itself has impacted how you think about form. How so? Well, I think you have to imagine what someone brings with them, right? And in many cases, those are immaterial things. And so the way in which someone imagines a past or retells a past, you know, thinks through, you know, beyond sentiment, like the things that they remember and how there's sometimes objecthood associated with that to trigger memory or to trigger some aspect of a past. Um, and I don't think this is unique to great migration. I think this is a migratory or diasporic logic in general, but specifically that's how I have a connection to it. And so my interest in photography already, I think, makes me sensitive to that, but even more so the pivot towards how memory and object, I guess, uh, have a relationship to one another is a way that I, I guess, felt compelled to think about fragmentation and placement of objects and things as they relate to thinking about a past. Well, let's pivot toward the work in a movement in every direction. Let's start by talking about <laughs> the floor. 
The work sits on the gallery floor. The floor has been important in your work, both in the installation of your work, such as in how you install sculptures and photographs and such, often directly on, on a gallery floor, and in how you have often built still life compositions on a floor that you have then photographed. I wrote that down like eight times to try to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to make that clear because I wanted to ask why the floor is important to you. So I am committed to certain principles that are really relative to sculpture and one in our architecture and actually just our physical being is gravity. And I think a, a real reminder of that boundness <laughs> that we all have to that force is by allowing for an object to yield to it. So the way that we do, right? And we, we often don't think about it, but that's a strong unifying principle. It sometimes is dangerous to do that because we are accustomed to associating value, right? With things that are elevated or things that are at eye level, <laughs> that are closer to our heads. But I'm interested in the body. And I think part of how I engage the body is through these indirect or adjacent modes and I think that depth and tenderness and nuance and care can happen by, I guess, giving attention to that very important force that we also have. We don't think about, we don't control, but it is a part of how we navigate space. So that's one of the main reasons why I am committed to it. Another is horizontality. So thinking about the horizon line, thinking about a more lateral mode. And that, I think, moves us away from a figure ground logic that often when we think about things on the wall or elevated to our eyes, you know, the figure ground <laughs> component is how we make sense of things spatially. And so blurring that or being committed to moving into three dimensions or a kind of sculptural spatial logic allows for me to point to other aspects of architecture and the larger plane that moves beyond the wall. I think because your work has a certain formal relationship or is seen as having a certain formal relationship to minimalism and minimalism made great use of the floor that people often assume there's a relationship between minimalism, you know, a Jackie Windsor sitting on the floor and your work sitting on the floor. Was it much important to you that, you know, from the, from, you know, like 63 ish on that, that the floor was important for minimalism? Yes. I mean, minimalism spoke to me as a young artist. And I think because of the commitment to certain principles and we could maybe think about those principles in terms of a commitment to abstraction or certain uni universals, let's just say, that are connected to geometry and certain formal components. But we also know that there is a relationship to a kind of, you know, postmodern choreography and dance that also were moving outside of bounds or certain preset bounds for those forms also in that time. And that there that many of these modes of formal address, be it minimalism, a postmodern dance, fluxus, that I think kind of parallels 
And then I'm going to also add the civil rights movement. And also, you know, I'm going to still inject like a social (laughs) edge here to the art historical conversation, you know, as well as, you know, anti-war movement, right? Like women's movements as well. Like, I just think all of these things were coming together in mid 20th century in super exciting ways. So I'm interested in that. And I think because of that, and I'm in a different time, (laughs) it feels quite refreshing. And I, and I hope that in my work, those entry points and entanglements are welcomed, right? So I'm not someone who's, who thinks that only a certain identity or a certain person can have a relationship to previous, right, generational position. I think that what we have now or what I have is looking back. And in that looking back, I could see, right, like this kind of this stamp, this time stamp that includes all of these other things that were happening at that time. And so to me, enriches the form. Art history never sits apart from the history of, you know, when when art was made, right? I mean, those things are inextricably tied, at least they are for me and in the way I think of these things. The works now in Mississippi of yours are made from wood, common material in your work, glass, common material in your work, and steel, significantly less common material in your work, but but certainly there. As I, as I thought of them as materials, less in terms of what you did with them, we'll get there. You know, I, I, I thought of how the means of transport for men, women, and children during the Great Migration were indeed wood, glass, and steel trains. Why wood, glass, and steel for these works? And, and I guess, am I thinking of one of the right reasons? Yes. And maybe this is something that I definitely gain from minimalism as well as post-minimalist works is really to put pressure on material choice and also how that material is made, right? Like how it is formed and that those things tell a story. So whether it be found or or manufactured. Well, handmade, handmade sits somewhere in there. I mean, cut glass. I don't know how cut glass is made, but I guess I vaguely presume that there's some handsiness involved. Yes, this is true. I was I was like hesitant to say that. I was like, is that true? Okay. Um, but <laughs> but yes, <laughs> definitely in post minimalist works. Like if we think of you know Eva Hesse or something like that, like those are totally all made by hand. But I think that for me, I I was interested in utilizing several things coming together, like thinking of mapping, thinking of a kind of psychogeography, and if I were to think about where my grandmother grew up and her movement from, you know, one one city, a more rural city to a more cosmopolitan city to a kind of uber cosmopolitan city. I know Chicago people don't like to hear that. But anyway, that's kind of what it is <laughs> or what it was. And so, you know, like what would that look like? And for all of the ways that I work, I'm often very much interested in thinking about materials, you know, first and primary. So some of my choices come from my photographic research. So pulling from images that I found, you know, from various archives, as well as my own familial archive, and looking up floor plans of the house slash store that she grew up in, thinking about the kinds of ways that she described that home, and 
the way that she also kept her own home. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that I was pulling from, but because I am an editor in essence, <laughs> in many ways, like I kind of start with a great deal and then go through this process of sifting and helping myself make an editorial process and make certain decisions about which materials make the most sense. And so it boiled down to these three. And the steel I've used before was to really point to, because the shape of the steel as an I-beam, as well as the kind of fragment that it produces through the right angles and various configurations through the three sculptures was extremely important and also the repetition of that. So for me, that was important to really kind of think about the infrastructure of a space, the strength of a space, to think of a foundation of a space, and to also think about that in motion. And so for me, the double meaning of that, right? So you brought up the train and travel, yes, you know, but also thinking about home, a home, right? And thinking about also where one tries to build a foundation and how that foundation may require laying down what would be considered the foundation over and over and over again, right? That it, it's not necessarily in one place or, and there are many factors that come into why that can or cannot be. And the wood, it's an extremely important material to me on, on so many, in so many ways. And across so much work and over 50 yes, years. Yes, yes, yes. It's very, it, it is one of the long lasting <laughs> attractions. And primarily it's thinking about a kind of longer time stamp, if you will, right? Like a tree can live, outlive us. <laughs> you know, we, and they do. <laughs> Hopefully, if we are better to the environment. But the point is, like, I like it as this memory marker of being in a place for a considerable amount of time, you know? And then also what we do with it, right? So the fact that it was milled and obviously not, you know, the, a, an image of the tree or, you know, it's no longer growing, but it, it does have... It migrates, is what it you're migrates, saying. It migrates, yes, and has an embeddedness. So choosing that material was, you know, really important and significant. And the material in this instance, you know, is a material that is indigenous to Georgia. And that was also very important for all of the the reasons that I hope are implied. It's red oak, we should say. Yes, it's red oak. And so, you know, the shapes that are a part of that come from, you know, I I didn't say this at the beginning, but my grandmother's father was a, you know, worked with, he was an upholsterer, but he also, you know, fixed furniture and was, you know, also had a small store. You know, he kind of really was a business person and also an artisan in many ways. And so I was really interested in trying to echo an attention to form and to detail and to a kind of an industrial mindset that these very simple shapes also imply because they can, you know, they're like these fragments that you could build out, you know, through repetition. There's a 19th century artisan, Thomas Day. He also was 
of interest to me because what is special about him is that some people make an argument that his way of crafting furniture and cabinets was this, I guess, argument of a kind of retention, African retention or West African retention, which is highly unlikely, but that kind of projection and imagining on that certain aspects of memory can travel to that, you know, close that very large gap is is interesting. And so he's someone who does have a very idiosyncratic, let's say, aesthetic, which includes a lot of curves, very kind of elongated shapes. And you could imagine like the Dogon or like, you know, thinking about other kinds of ways of representing form. There are these kind of uncanny parallels between some of his, I guess, intricacies in woodwork that was interesting to me. So there's also a little bit of play for me in echoing some of his curves, like these kind of very elongated shapes and kind of exaggerated forms. So Glass. The the glass in each installation, as I understand it, is glass that comes from your family. Yes. So my grandmother was one of 14. She was the youngest. And something that was very particular to her family, but it's, it's, you know, again, this is not a portrait of my family per se, but it's interesting because it, it allowed me to think through so many things as it relates to aesthetics. And Zora Neale Hurston, there's a, a essay that I read from her where she talks about this too, right? So like things that I guess in her way of field recording, <laughs> not only the vernacular speech of much of her research, this particular essay is also her addressing space and how, you know, the kinds of things that one encounters or sees in a home. So something particular for my grandmother and her sisters were the keeping of these kind of functional glass objects, but presenting them really only for aesthetic, uh, for display. And they sometimes were oddly votive or, you know, like they just had all of these kind of double, triple meeting meanings. I personally just enjoyed looking at them and also noting in my, in my mind, you know, how my grandmother took great care to arrange them, you know, obviously flower, like there were all of these things that she, she just did. So, so those very precious <laughs> materials you know, enter into enter into conversation with the wood and the steel. And that precarious juxtaposition is something that I think in, I hope allows for the work to have another quality, right? Then so these kind of precious or perhaps very fragile objects are literally juxtaposed to these other materials that potentially have more are more durable, can ha- handle more weight in terms of their, you know, basically their makeup, but together as a, you know, as a unified form, they do something else. So I say quietly, but I think these works are very quiet and I think they operate on a lower register, almost like a whisper in the context of the exhibition. And these glass objects, I hope, kind of bring a little bit of that attention to to beauty and that those things are 
kind of essential <laughs> to all of us in different ways, you know, however we find them. So, so the placement of them, you know, is very particular. Also, you know, how they rest in, in, in each one of these iterations through the exhibition is also, I hope, evocative of that. You know, speaking of the glassworks, four or so years ago, Osmos published a terrific and fantastically thoughtfully designed small monograph of your work. Shout out to Garrick Gott, who did the design concept on the project. So early on in the book, there's a quote from you saying that the great art historian Kelly Jones, quote, opened your mind to learning about the intricacies of early American decorative arts. Seeing as we're talking about family glass that's here in these works, I was wondering how Dr. Jones did that. Well, actually, that's how I know about Thomas Day. Oh, how about that? Was through the class, which was fascinating on so many levels. And I think not only learning about this historic figure who, of course, you know, history is full of people who, who, who deserve attention. But outside of that, it was, I loved the abstraction. Like I literally just loved this notion of embedding something, right? Like, like the shapes within the glass. shapes, the shapes within glass, the shapes also within wood in this instance of Thomas Day's work, just the attention to form and this transference, if you will, or sublimation, whatever we want to call it, you know, that, that, that form that one lives with different than art <laughs> per se, but something that has a function in life, maybe not as. Uh, <laughs> it has a different thoughtfulness. Yes, a different thoughtfulness. I don't want to create a unnecessary hierarchy here, <laughs> but you understand what I mean. Like, so this designed object that's meant to, you know, be, to be in someone's life in the most intimate way that was fascinating and extremely compelling and interesting. And so I think it opened my mind to really think about objects and the small, seemingly insignificant choices, like, you know, how some, how two materials join, <laughs> right? Is it a dovetail joint or is it, you know, like those small decisions are so important and impeccable. And of course, those who study this on a daily basis, this is of course important. But for me at the time, that wasn't something that I thought about until this class, you know, and also this notion of this kind of memory retention, right? Or at least the the projection of that was was also fascinating. You know, this was before reading post-memory or, you know, thinking about it from a diasporic sense and a psychological sense, but thinking about like, wow, like, could you remember that? <laughs> you know, like in this kind of speculative space, like, could that be something that's passed down? It was really beautiful. I mean, put it this way. I can't remember Dr. Jones. I can't imagine Dr. Jones leading a class and kind of looking around and going, excuse me, young woman in the third row, you know, yes, you, you should learn about early American decorative arts. There must have been some prompt that guided her to send you in that direction? Well, this was her class. I mean, she was teaching to her research, so I'm not sure how it connected to any particular book or maybe it was an essay that she was working on that was never really revealed, but ah, this so was... It might not have even been personal to you. No. Oh, how about that? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. See, teaching works, people. Teaching works. <laughs> yes, it does. 
Yes. So this is just something that I just gravitated towards because I was in sculpture. I was making photographs in sculpture. And it was one of those moments where it synchronized. It was like an object can be a photograph or an object can take on the qualities that we project into an image. Like, how does that work? You know, so it just created the class was an opportunity opportunity in a moment where I was also very open to grappling with really how sculpture, why I'm attracted to sculpture and B, other ways that sculpture and a kind of abstraction can also play into this conversation around memory that I was interested in at the time. I don't want to leave listeners with the impression that you had this experience in Dr. Jones's class and it's only now surfacing surfacing in the work. I just for the sake of the record let me note that you've used domestic objects in 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 works before such as in 2010's a series of projections which I think features shards of a domestic piece of porcelain it looks mm-hmm. like maybe like a yes. sugar cup or something. Yes. So it's been it's been there in the work for a while. Another theme that runs through a lot of your work is the tension between stability and instability. And it's here in this work in Jackson too, particularly in, at least for me, for example, the shape of the wood, if, if a viewer compares the shape of the wood in the different works around the show uh, and how like some of the wood could f- possibly fit within other of the wood that maybe not quite, the relationship between the glass and the steel sitting next to each other and so on. And so I wanted to talk about how you use stability and instability in your work a lot. And a great example of that tension is in and maybe begins in the untitled photographic works you started making around 2010 that are floor-mounted photographs featuring a plywood square. The square immediately recalls Malievich on one hand and Richard Serra's corner pieces on another, but they're often kind of balanced on things or resting on things or cattywampus on things and might fall down. What is remarkably consistent across that long series of pictures, of photographs, is that you use a simple square to make us look very, very closely at everything that's going on around it. And, and, and what makes us, make, makes us pay that close attention is that tension between stability and instability. So how did you land on stability and instability as such a valuable and rich playground? So I think that it isn't those two options. (laughs) And maybe it's helpful to move to thinking about poetry because, you know, if we think about all of what can happen when two words land next to each other in the composition, right, of prose or of of poetry. And so there's so much that is built into really the process of making meaning that I'm interested in. And that I think is a journey. It's It's a process. It's practice. It is an action. <laughs> it is something that, you know, is unsettled, right? And I think a strong poem or, I don't mean to only say poetry, I guess I mean like, you know, the structure of language, maybe that's better and more broad and open, you know, kind of just allows for so many ways of reading or taking an account of meaning trying to get to, you know, something that is precise, 
But um, I think where I, I move more towards poetry is because I'm interested more so in language not being pre precise, like perhaps journalism we want, you know, or kind of historiography. I'm not necessarily interested in that, but getting close, you know, getting close enough, but also allowing for there to be more of this process of returning to something. And, and perhaps in that return, it it can become deeper or more interesting or, right? So for the still lives, let's just say, or the works that engage this, there is this kind of cosmology of terms that I'm building over time. And the fact that, you know, they are kind of in this precarious state or, you know, either in the, you know, process of becoming or maybe unbecoming is really to me important and it's and it's important in two main ways one is that i think because i'm using photography a lot of my actions are pushing against all of what we think is stable in an image when it is not <laughs> and so context and context is really shape all, all of the often how an image communicates. So I am on a deep level, you know, meta level within the photograph, like playing that out, you know, over and over and over and over again. And the other is really setting up a scenario that happens, you know, between the work and the viewer or the work and the reader or the work and the participant <laughs> is that there is this intimate and I, I've said this before in writing and about my work that this kind of call to an audience, right, to kind of engage and that the process of meaning is collaborative, right? It isn't really passive uh, for the person who's viewing. And I think I do practice some level of refusal in the work. I think in the photographic work more so than in the sculpture. I think sculpture already has that built in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's by, you know, yeah, by a million miles. So, you know, so I, I'm kind of misbehaving a little bit <laughs> in the work, but that's only to kind of garner up someone who's willing, right, to have a different sense of things and to be open to that playfulness, but also that importance as it relates to the materials that I'm that I'm using to photograph in the work, as well as what the work in general is trying to do in this dance between, you know, sculpture and photography. The key thing in that series of pictures, which started in around 2010 and continued at least through 2019, and maybe you're still making them, is that plywood square. We've talked about wood a little bit, but why a plywood square? Why why is that? A, why did that become a useful shape and material and thing? I don't know. Maybe you're using the same plywood square in every picture. I don't know. Why did that become a useful thing to play with and to to, to construct around? So it's it's not the same. So in every in every work, like sometimes it's maple, it's elm, and that's what guides what I make the frame, that physical frame out of. So it's the same wood. So it's it's very subtle, but it is that you know translation, right? So the representation of the thing and the thing itself being present simultaneously for someone who's who's looking. So that's that's that, <laughs> but also. You may know, I mean, part of why I call those works still lives is also to evoke 
that history in art history that I have always had a fascination, you know, with primarily because of the time that they're being made and the reality that like, you know, the transatlantic slave trade was happening at the same time in many instances, aspects of colonialism. And I think that's obviously evocative in the, the kinds of things that are often presented. So beside the Vanitas skull and things like this, there's maps often. Glasses. Um, armadillo, <laughs> armadillo shells, yes. Yeah. Seashells, you know, pepper, like things that are, and that was, that was another way of thinking about materials and like the stories that they tell, you know. So there is a bit of deconstruction that I'm interested in as well. So in, in those representations from, you know, the 16th and 17th century, they are cornucopias. They're very kind of luscious. These are very pared down, you know, very like almost, again, like the table is turned <laughs> and these objects are kind of in motion in, in a sense. But the plywood also is a ubiquitous material. You know, it's part of our built world. It's how we manu- manufacture. And also, you know, I think it, it exposes so many things about our society that we don't maybe think twice about now. So really, in many ways, I think my gesture towards still life is a kind of a note to self, but also <laughs> a note to a future self too, because I think it's a material that I think is a part of the built world. It's a part of our domestic life. It's a part of so much of what we use for our infrastructure and and so much of what we perhaps unsee. And many of the books that I use in that series and what I'm pointing to is 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 oftentimes the the slippages and the kinds of things that are unseen. So so that material I think is meaning the plywood specifically, but wood I think I already answered earlier. I mean that's still there too, but plywood in particular carries a certain labor associated with it as well as a kind of function. And it makes sense to put that front and center. I don't mean to suggest that this is at all within your intent, but when I see those works, another association I make, knowing that you call them and think of them as still lifes, is I think of panel painting. I think of still life as emerging as a thing in painting. Granted, those paintings almost always are on canvas by the time still life really becomes a prominent thing, but all of that wood still reminds me of painting and panel painting and, and art and painting's history. I mean, one of the things I love about those works is that the longer you tease out the associations, both formally and then the stuff that's actually in the photographs, the more things you find. They just You just keep going and going and going. That's fun for a viewer, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, and also I would say, too, those paintings are very, we can maybe use this word, ahistorically photographic, right? Because there's a lot of attention to light. Flowers from different seasons within a single flower arrangement. Yes. And light and using an apparatus to paint those, right? Which is a lens or some level of optics. So there there is a nice entanglement (laughs) between painting and photography that's also there that I think is important. Yes. You know, we talked about stability and instability earlier and, and how you play with that. Are you interested 
in the instability inherent in photography because color photography is pretty, you know, in the long term unstable? No, no. I think that's fine. I think everything should have a lifespan. I don't think everything. I don't think everything should last forever. But I do think that conservators um, are throwing their iPhones against <laughs> walls. But continue. <laughs> <laughs> but I think when you said instability earlier, I was really thinking about that in terms of some level of the reading of images. You know, so I was thinking of semiotics to a certain degree. I was also thinking of, most recently, Ariele Azule's contribution to this in her very important book, The Civil Contract of Photography. You know, just realizing that the event of the photograph is always unfolding, you know, so it's not really something that is captured per se. And I think in my work, Riffs on Real Time, I also more intuitively, you know, before encountering Ariela's work, but was interested in that like hmm like why how how does an image carry content right or meaning you know without its caption in essence like you know what really what it really is occurring in in the image and so there is this inherent instability i believe definitely within a photograph in terms of its its content and its and its reading and how its content is interpreted in a future and that there's so many conditions that need to be there for for it to kind of maintain <laughs> maintain that but i think that's quite beautiful i'm glad you brought up riffs on real time because that's where i wanted to go next because we really haven't talked about photography that much which is kind of ironic given that we've both worked on how photography can build memory in a powerful way and that a, in such a powerful way really that a photograph becomes our understanding of a place it's often more than our experience of that place. And so in, in those riffs on real-time pictures, you sometimes juxtapose a historical photograph of an event, such as a march, with a historical photograph of a domestic environment, indoors or outdoors, like a lounge chair in a backyard, for example. So is your interest in those in evoking a memory or in revealing how memory is constructed? Or are you pointing out that Harris cannot be split in that way? <laughs> I think I'm more connected to exposing some aspect of how memory is constructed because I think I come to photography with a skeptical position. <laughs> and primarily that is you know, really built on feeling frustrated from uh, familial photographs, right? That they, it's not the same as hearing a person's voice, right? It's not the same as being, right? So it's like, how does this thin piece of paper or plastic really conjure this great memory, especially when you don't have the corporeal memory to also align with it? So I'm coming with that position. But also I want to add, you know, very much influenced by filmmakers. So, you know, many filmmakers from the LA Rebellion, Barbara McCullough, which I didn't mention yet, like her, her work, Water Ritual, was also really important to the work in Mississippi as well. There's a lot of formal things that she does with objects in that film that I, I'm amazed by. And so some of the play that I formal play, but obviously linked to kind of very, very strong 
issues as it relates to some some aspect of social justice, which the LA Rebellion represent, but also Third Cinema before them, I, I was really intrigued with like how you really have to push the form to do other things. Like if you want to talk about certain things, <laughs> it's one thing to represent those things. It's another thing to make another form. <laughs> and I worked and had as teachers, which I really adore and feel very grateful for was working closely with Andrea Robbins and Max Becker and, you know, traveled with them to Dominican Republic for a project that they were working on in Samana. When you worked with them, you had to also do a project. And I, I did a project there that was quite documentary or quite straight photography of a wall in a woman's home. And it turned out that there was a community of free people of color who traveled or migrated to what was then Hispaniola in 1824. And so there were people whose like great, great grandfather or grandmother were from Philadelphia or something like this. And that was really, I guess, shifting my sense of time and place. And I did a series of photographing in the homes of some of these descendants, let's just say of African-Americans. And there was one home that I couldn't quite come to terms with whether or not it was my projection or want to see some aspect of something that was familiar to me and recognizable because it wasn't language that was connecting us and it wasn't anything physical in terms of appearance. And so I was like, what, what, it, what is this thing that is supposed to bind or, or make a connection? And I saw it in how this woman collaged images of her family into a single frame. And that's something that my grandmother did too. So so my piece was photographing her wall, <laughs> if you can imagine Walker Evans style, and then photographing my grandmother's. <laughs> and then when I got that, I realized that wasn't enough. So I built a frame that also shared a, a 90 degree angle that could hang on the wall and hold both of these images that also were of corners. So there were like three corners. <laughs> you know, the present corner and the representation of either corner. And formally, the, I feel like that was the breakthrough for Riffs on Real Time for me, you know, realizing that context and space, like a spatial or phenomenological relationship to space is as important as the image. So for Riffs on Real Time, it's not the center, which I hope you see the, the 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 ringing truth for my work. It's decentered. <laughs> so the the snapshot is the centered moment, but it isn't that, right? It's what's echoing out. So what it's resting upon is an object that is mass produced, but travel you know travels through various modes of touch and physicality and, and tells on time in its own way, and then. Another layer, which is a ground, which is a floor or, or a wood floor, or in some instances, it's a carpet um, that also has a certain color. And so, but it's also the most abstracted because you have no idea where you, where you are with that. But the point is that it is that moving out from, you know, something that's, I guess, posing to be so specific to a kind of broader context. And then that then moves out to why every single 
piece is called Riffs on Real Time, right? Because they all together collectively, I hope, start to kind of play on this question of spatial memory, you know, and touch, haptic memory, you know, things being touched, feeling something, and that those works also kind of I hope evoke that not only the physical touch of a piece of paper or a snapshot, or it's also calling up some some feeling, right? Some some sentiment, some position. Those pictures are textured, and they 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 tempt touch also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's wrap up with kind of a a straight art history question because I'm an art history nerd, and we veered a couple times without totally committing. <laughs> Your most recent commercial gallery show in New York was at Periton, and it featured five white floor-mounted steel sculptures and other things. Those sculptures are very much within the language and color, indeed, of big male minimalism, but they reject its simplicity of form. They reject its reliance on straightforward, simple three-dimensional shape. They're immediately, to a viewer upon entering the space, more complicated than a solowit or something. Uh, visually complicated than a soloette. So they're works that use or build lines of perspective and orientation to situate the viewer within the space. Maybe using them as a specific example, what about using some of minimalism's forms and even colors and then tweaking them is useful for you? And, and maybe a simpler way to put that is what does building from that visual language allow you to do in in, 2020, in the 2020s? Well, I think it also allows for a leap back further than minimalism, because many of the minimalists were also informed by other forms and other ways of making and thinking. Like I'm thinking Saul Lewitt, also Islamic art was very important to him in architecture. So, you know, I just spent time in Marfa and Judd, like, wow, so well read, right? Like I, you know, obsessed with languages. When you save your library and make it public. You know, but also like, you know, philosophy and world philosophy, you know, like really. So I think that, you know, minimalism isn't a beginning point, you know, it's a continuum and it's maybe not called minimalism, but, you know, so I I see it as a, as a way of connecting to a continuum, a continuum that there are certain forms and shapes that are connected to being human. They show up. (laughs) time and time again in antiquity, as well as in, you know, 20th century art history, and as well as in our contemporary moment. So I see it as an intentional way of pulling aspects of that continuum forward, and that it includes me. The great former Judd assistant and Shinati Foundation deputy director, Rob Wiener, if you told me once, he told me a hundred times that Judd was fascinated by the golden mean which I think speaks to what you were just what you were just talking about. I love it. Leslie Hewitt, thank you so much. Thank you. On view at the Getty Villa through August 8th, the dazzling new exhibition Persia, Ancient Iran and the Classical World explores the artistic and cultural connections between ancient Iran, which was historically known as Persia, Greece, and Rome. Works on view include royal sculpture, spectacular luxury objects, religious images, and historical documents assembled from major museums in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. The exhibition also features an immersive film exploring the site and palaces of Persepolis, 
the ceremonial capital of Persia. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The scene changes. Sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Izumu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. The exhibition follows sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinin, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Cornell Watson joins me to discuss his work, which is included in Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The exhibition features over 100 works by 30 artists working across North Carolina. It features work from Watson's Behind the Mask series, a visual consideration of black life in present-day America. Watson's work has been previously featured in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Cornell Watson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. The pictures on view at the Nasher are part of a series you've titled Behind the Mask. What is the mask? The mask is the thing that black people wear as they move about through society to protect themselves from whiteness. That is the mask. It is kind of a metaphorical or an alternate metaphor for code switching in a way. It is, yeah. It's definitely a metaphor for code switching. I guess I've heard someone describe it as like self-censoring. But yeah, this is like in that realm. Why was that an idea you wanted to take on, not just with one photograph, but, but really with a series of pictures? Yeah, so, so it really came about because we were having this... So Behind the Mask started, I started working on this in 2020. And it was right at the beginning where we were like, starting to have like this racial awakening conversation in America. And I was actually working a full-time job at, <laughs> at the time in talent acquisition, HR. And I had been working in that space for eight years and was really thinking about how much I was wearing the mask in my day-to-day -day life and all the things throughout my life. 
And then I started thinking about my parents and how much they wore the mask. And it felt like for the first time in a long time, Black people were starting not to wear the mask during this racial awakening conversation. And so I really wanted to bring forth some things via photos about things that we were hiding behind the mask. So these feelings about these feelings about police brutality that we don't typically talk about at work or feelings about some of our managers that we work for, you know, that uh, that that subscribe to whiteness that we don't talk about at work. So, yeah, so there, there was a lot of things that, you know, there's so many things to touch on, like in this conversation. And so I, I picked a few that felt close to me at the moment you know, where I had access to some, some, some stories. So there were 10 total stories or photos in this series to start with. One of the masks you address is the relationship between black men and women and nationalism, American nationhood, and particularly symbols of the American nation. The American flag, for example, pops up in, well, more than pops up, is central to quite a number of pictures in the series, two or three. What about the mask and questions of nationalism and nationhood particularly interested you? Yeah, there's like, there's a, like a lot to unpack. And that I think central to like that question is like our, our citizenship or like our patriotism, our Americanness, that's the word, is always under question, even though we've been an integral part to the building of America and the, yeah, everything that America is, like we have been like a core central part to it. And so, yeah, there are two, I believe there are two images in in the photos that have the American flag. One is where there is my best friend that's laying, laying down on one where he's submerged in the water. A lake. Yep, the lake. And he's really only submerged from about the clavicle up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So his head is submerged in in the water, and that and that story basically came about where he's, you know, he's telling me about we're we're in his kitchen on his birthday, you know, just having like casual conversation, and I ask him like, you know, well, how does it feel to turn another year older? And at this time, like. You know, there is, you know, George Floyd is in the news, Breonna Taylor, like there's all these things that are just like happening on top of our like regular everyday pandemic lives. Right. (laughs) And, you know, he long story short, like he basically like describes to me like all these things that come with being black. He talks about like he is starting to understand that his future is going to entail him having to tell his boys that like they are going to have to act a certain way and do certain things to protect themselves from whiteness, you know, as black boys. So not being able to play in the front yard with toy guns or, you know, having to say, you know, you know, yes, sir. And yes, ma'am, to certain people. And basically like the respectability politics of, you know, of, of surviving. And as he's describing these things there, you can just feel the weight of it all. And I left that conversation feeling like he was like he was drowning in in America, being black in America was feeling like a drowning sensation. 
And so that's how this photo came about, where his two boys are there with the water guns, looking at him drown in America, which is why that flag is, why he's laying on the flag. But it also forces the, the viewer to really think about what it means, like what that flag means. And for a lot of us, especially Black people, like it really is, you know, it's, it's a piece of fabric at the end of the day. But for some people, like it's their definition of what it means to be America. Symbolically, I think that for, for a lot of Black people, you know, it's much, you know, being American is much more than, than waving the flag around. And so the crowd that puts a lot of weight in that fabric has a lot of trouble seeing the damage that America does to the Black body. And so, yeah, and then, and then it's culminated by this story that, like, as I'm photographing this image, you know, then there's the, the white couple that paddles down the lake and is, you know, talking about, like, you know, how they're offended by, by us, you know, having the flag on the ground, totally ignoring that, you know, like, my best friend's, like, laying on the flag with his head under the water. So, you know. <laughs> A number of the pictures in, in this series are informed by art historical engagements, and I think we'll talk about a couple of those as we go along here. I wanted to ask if there is an artwork or two that from which the drowning descends. Yeah, no, I didn't have art inspiration for this one. This one was purely informed by that conversation from my friend. And yeah, we, <laughs> and we, like, I, I started to put this, like, I, I probably had this all planned out maybe like months before we even made the photo. The problem was, is that it was a rainy summer. And so every time we went to the lake to try to find a spot, the water line was so high that there was no, <laughs> like, there was no shoreline. Yeah. And actually, like, in the photo, you can, like, almost see, like, if you look at the rock in the background, you can see where the water line had, had been at, you know, because it's, like, really dark. So, yeah. So then this one day on, <laughs> which was the 4th of July when we made the photo, like, we were just sitting around and I was like, you know what? You know, we should go. It hadn't rained in a long time. Like, we should go now. Like, and he kind of like thought I was crazy, but I was like, no, like we should really go now. Like, you know, like this, you know, we always have like these like very conflicting thoughts on the 4th of July about, you know, about freedom uh, because we weren't free, you know, on the 4th of July. And so I was like, you know, I feel like this is the perfect time to go make this photo. And so we went there and it was crowded. I mean, it was people everywhere. And <laughs> you only see the two white boys other than the the central figure in the picture yeah it was it was so crowded there were like people all over the place and we found we got lucky to find like this one little spot where no one was at and yeah we, we made it like we hurry up and made it my spouse was there his spouse was there we made the photo and we got out of there because like, you know, people were starting to come up and ask, you know, like, what were we doing? And I mean, we're like in rural, like Durham, North Carolina, like where we're the only black people out at the lake on this day, in this area. So it was just like, all right, let's get in and get out. But um, no, to answer your question. Yeah, this one was purely informed, you know, inspired just by that conversation. And this is kind of like what I put together to kind of depict that 
that sensation, that feeling that he was having about being black in America as a father. The work that I thought of when I first saw The Drowning was Ming Smith's America Seen Through Stars and Stripes, New York City, from about 1976, in which a black man wearing large reflective sunglasses is standing before presumably some sort of shop window. There are American flags hanging in the shop window behind him, and the street life of the city is is reflected in the window. And so you can't see his eyes, and of course you can't see the man's head in the drowning, which is one reason I thought of it. But it's an image that is also asking questions about nationhood and belonging. There's reflection. The, the, the figure in Ming Smith's picture isn't being suffocated by the flag, nor is the figure in your work, but the figure is placed against the flag in such a way as to ask questions, which is the same strategy, or AAA same strategy that's, that's within the drowning. Another work in your series is called Righteous Rage, and it also features an interrogation of the American flag, and it introduces another idea that runs through a number of the works in the series, and that is violence or the potential for violence. And in all of the works in which you raise violence in this series, it's there in a disconcertingly calm, matter-of-fact, maybe, kind of way. We'll have images of these on, on, and a link to your website, of course, and your Instagram on manpodcast.com. How did you think through how you wanted to address, represent, and take on violence? You know, like I, I think about historically with, with Black resistance, there's always been like this agitation, I guess, is, is it might be a good word that happens, right? You know, you think about the civil rights movement, you think about even, for instance, like with, with the Rodney King, you know, riots, like there's always been this friction. I don't know if I'd necessarily re- like refer to it as violence, because it's oftentimes like we're the ones that are, we're violent is being inflicted on us. And so, yeah, I think maybe referring to it as, as, you know, like violence is maybe not the most accurate way, but it is definitely like resistance to violence that we're looking at. And with, for like with Righteous Rage, there, like this photo is about like this mom and daughter. There's a lot of symbolism related to let me, let me let me jump in real quick. The, the the mother you refer to is you know maybe in her seventies or eighties, and the daughter is maybe in her thirties or forties. So we're not we're not t- we're talking about you know adults and yep elderly adults. Correct. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And yeah, so this the photo is personal to them, but it is also very representative of a lot of Black Americans and their feelings about the violence of white supremacy and the reaction to that violence. And the flag is introduced here because for two reasons. One, the the patriarch of the family passed away and I actually knew them. They were a they were a middle school teacher of mine and they were a veteran. And we wanted to think about a way to honor his legacy in in this image and his fight for you know what he had done to fight for our freedom so that flag is representative of of you know him 
but it's also representative a representation of America and these two you know kind of ideologies about like how do we move forward you know with fighting back against white supremacy and obtaining like all the freedoms that we're supposed to have and you know I feel like a lot of people think about the old school thought about doing that is through the church like you think about the civil rights movement a lot of things happen through through the church a lot of those meetings happen there a lot of the organization happened there and which is why the mother is you know standing with the bible and i think sometimes like we can think about that as being like as peaceful in a way like you know this is a peaceful protest but you know as i mentioned earlier like those those protests you know, via like Martin Luther King and a lot of people via the church weren't necessarily peaceful protests because they are resisting, you know, this balance of white supremacy. So she's holding the, you know, the Bible. There's this old school way of going about doing this. And then you have like this. So on the right is this like new school, kind of new school thought, but like a different thought of like, we are tired. And if it, takes burning everything to the ground and starting over, then that's what that's what we'll do, you know, kind of mentality. And that flag is in the middle because like between those two thoughts, you know, between the two, you know, kind of ideologies is kind of this path to to a free America for all, you know, if that makes sense. So, you know, it it does take it kind of takes both both energies to kind of make this thing happen. I think it was Reverend William Barber who always says that, like, you know, like you got to pray with your feet. And this is kind of like that example where, you know, like prayer takes action. And sometimes that that action isn't always a peaceful one. You know, it takes some agitation to, to make things happen. So this is Righteous Rage in the images. The title is basically the yeah, this the daughter on the right side of the image. And even even the mom on the left, like because they're they're both they're both tired and both are enraged about the current America that we live in, and they're both entitled. Like we're all entitled to this rage. Like we have, you know, it's, this rage is righteous, you know, that we are experiencing. It's one of a number of works in the series that includes multiple generations within a single image which to me is one of the most interesting things about the series, that you mindfully have figures that the viewer, without knowing who they are, reads as mother and daughter, son and parents. And I presume that you were thinking through the necessity, frustrating necessity of multi-generational struggle and reaction and response and rebellion. Yeah, and, and the thing is that like it's always been multi-generational. I think even when we reflect on the civil rights movement, a lot of times it's easy to think that, you know, these were adults that were making making these decisions and organizing. When in reality, a lot of the organization happened from the youth, from students, you know, with SNCC members, you know, even Martin Luther King was like, you know, in his early 20s. I mean, he went to Morehouse when he was in, you know, in high school. So his father was a minister, right? Yeah, the, the movement resistance has always been multi-generational. And these conversations have, you know, have always been multi-generational. So but I think it was even more natural to do this because, you know, 
at the time when I was making these images, a lot of like what I had been doing was family photography work. And so, yeah, like, like having these images of family just became like a natural subject to include in the series because that's what I knew. That's what I knew well. And, you know, and that's my, that's my history. And that's a huge part of like my upbringing. And the reason that I'm here today is, you know, you know, my mom had a large family and, you know, that was the village. So, yeah, I feel like it, it kind of transpired through the photo series a bit. And of course, that's not true only in the in the 20th and 21st century centuries. You know, William Watkins raised Francis Harper, right, in, in early 19th century Baltimore. I mean, I think I think what you said about, you know, I think one of the things the series got me thinking about was those family multi-generational relationships going back further in, in American history and how loaded that is and what it says about America's history. The last work I want to ask about is The Kitchen Table Incident, which is a tip of the hat to both John, the muralist John Wilson and his Mexico City mural, which is no longer extant, called The Incident, and Carrie Mae Weems's The Kitchen Table series, interesting pair of works to mash up. What prompted you to address both the Wilson, which today is known through photographs and studies, which survive, and Carrie Mae Weems's work together? So I, before the story of this image actually happened, I had gone to Yale, Yale University's art museum, had the the photographs of John Wilson's work. They actually had a, a exhibition dedicated to to that mural, the incident called "Reckoning with the Incident: John Wilson's Studies for a Lynching Mural." It was one of those pandemic era shows that had its <laughs> existence massively scrambled. <laughs> it did. I got. I was really fortunate to be able to see it. It was like weeks before like the world shut down i saw it we had gone to new haven my partner is from from new haven connecticut and her dad lives there and we gone there for his birthday and one of the things like we always do is just kind of walk around new haven and he had mentioned that this exhibition was there and i was like sure let's go that that would be interesting to see and we get there and i am just it's hard to put in words like when you see this, when you see the incident, I mean, obviously it's not as big as what the mural was, but they they had a big print of it on the wall. You know, it really just, you know, it really just takes you aback because it is so relevant to today, like the image of the dad, you know, looking out the window to see the KKK lynching a black person while the mother is holding her son inside the home. It really made me think about like how things haven't really changed and how that window that we witness the violence of white supremacy through is much different now. Let me let me jump in really quick to say there literally is a window in the incident. So when you say the window, you mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, literal, yeah, a literal window in the incident that, that, that this dad is looking through. But that window is, has changed now. You know, the way that we witness white supremacy has changed. You know, we now see it on Facebook, you know, via live stream or, you know, Instagram live stream when people are recording, you know, these encounters with, you know, with police. 
It's in our newspapers, you know, it's in all different types of formats now. And so I thought about that when I left and I just kind of like held on to that idea about, you know, how, how things have kind of morphed a bit. And then we met our neighbors. So these are my neighbors that live a few doors down from us that I photographed for this particular photo. But we did not meet them until like a few months into the pandemic. I think it was like National Cookout Day. You know, it's the day where everybody's, you know, bring your grill out <laughs> to the front yard kind of thing. And we were, you know, the community decided we were going to try to do something safe, you know, COVID safe with National Cookout Day. And so everybody had brought their grill out in the front yard and it was just a way for neighbors to meet each other. And I look down the street and I'm like, oh my goodness, like we we have black neighbors. <laughs> you know, I had no idea that, you know, there were uh, there was this black, beautiful black family that lives a few doors down from us. And so, you know, we go down and introduce ourselves and a few weeks later, uh, we decided that we were going to, you know, have our, you know, meet up in the backyard and cook out on the grill for our families to just kind of get to know each other kind of thing. Around that time, there was, I believe it was the Ahmad Arbery case was just starting to make the round in the news. And this, the dad of the family is like just super angry, upset about just everything that is happening around this time because, you know, you know, George Floyd had been in the news and Breonna Taylor happened and it's like Ahmaud Aubrey was just really just like, you know, send, sending him off, you know, almost on a tipping point. And he was, you know, he was like, Cornell, like you really, like you need the, you need to be able to protect your family. Like you need the, you need to make sure you, you got something to protect your family. And, you know, he, he like starts talking about his guns that he has, you know, in case something ever happens. And we go inside to to eat, you know, eat some of the food that they cooked out on the grill or whatever. And all I could think about, you know, as we're at the kitchen table having these conversations about what was going on is the Carrie Mae Weems, you know, kitchen table series. And then, like, I'm thinking about this incident series that I saw in New Haven, you know, where we're literally talking about, you know, these lynchings that are happening. Here's this dad that is looking through the window of the news media to, to witness this and talking about like how he needs to protect his family the same way that that black dad was protecting his family in that incident photo. And so about a week later, I went back and asked them, you know, if I could photograph them for this conceptual photo idea that I had for this photo series that I was working on. And yeah, I, I had a friend who worked for the News and Observer who got me an issue of when there were the... The headline, the headline in the Nando in your picture is hundreds gather in Raleigh to protest police killings. And so, yeah, I got a friend that worked for the News and Observer she got a hold of one of those papers for me so that I could include that in the foreground of the image, basically as the window, similar to the incident that this dad is looking through. But the image is shot through the perspective, like first person perspective of their daughter that is holding the newspaper. And so it's almost like the reverse of the incident where, you know, the where the viewer is witnessing the dad looking out through the window, where here, like the viewer is looking into the window of the family to, to kind of see their, them protecting themselves and just kind of like their dismay of 
at what's happening out in the world with police police brutality and just the violence of white supremacy. So yeah, so the, these two ideas kind of merged together on top of this actual story that happened with, with my neighbors. Yeah, and the the composition is based on uh, Carrie Mae Weems' Kitchen Table series, and even actually really more than the composition, because the shadows, you've, you've done the lighting so that the shadows that are in the back of the Weems's are, are in the back of, of your picture. And the other, I don't think the gentleman in your picture looks like the guy, the, the, the man with the gun in the incident, but there are, you know, they don't look unlike either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> Cornell Watson, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.